In part 5 of this series, we discuss sex and sexuality, becoming a team and resolving conflicts. We discuss the differences between men and women and share seven practical steps to resolving conflicts in marriage. Stay tuned for more. All right, let's turn our Bibles please to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 22 and 23. and then we're going to stand up and make our declaration this morning mark chapter 11 mark 11 22 and 23 very familiar verses of scripture uh, for many of us the lord jesus was a great teacher about faith in god and uh, even you look at his ministry every time he ministered to people there's one thing that he really called people into which was to have faith in god he always challenged and uh, what is interesting is even in the worst of situations he told people have faith in god you know he didn't say okay now let's leave faith aside and let's figure out something else no you remember when jairus's daughter you know uh, jairus's daughter was dead people came and said you know why are you troubling the master what was his response he said fear not only believe so when things was things were really bad the lord jesus taught us fear not only believe same thing when he came before the tomb of uh, uh lazarus and mary and martha were there and and martha told him lord if you had only come few days earlier uh, my brother would not have died uh, what was jesus response he simply said martha did i not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of god so even in that situation he's saying believe you will see the glory of god i mean lazarus is dead the tomb is buried it's really hopeless and jesus says he's talking about faith he's talking about faith if you believe you will see the glory of god so uh that's the teacher that's the lord jesus teaching us to have faith in god and here in mark 11:22-23 he once again teaches us something more about faith in god in verse 22 he says have faith in god have faith in god And then he verse 23 tells us you know how do you release this faith how do you exercise your faith in god how do you make use of this faith how do you put this faith into action make it active he teaches us in verse 23 he says whoever therefore says to this mountain whoever means anybody in whether you are a 12 year old i don't think any 12 year olds are here but if you're a 15 year old or you're a you know 25 year old or a 50 year old doesn't matter whoever shall say to this mountain be removed be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believe that what he says will come to pass he will have whatever he says so he taught us how to how do you use your faith in god this is how you do it have faith in god then speak to your mountain speak to the mountain tell the mountain to move what is this obstacle what is this hindrance what is this difficult situation what is this problem you speak your faith to it 
Yeah, you say, if there's, a, if there's a situation of need, you speak to it and say, my God will supply all my needs. If it's a situation of sickness, you speak to it, say to it, by the stripes of Jesus I am healed. So you speak to your mountain, you declare that word. That's what Jesus taught us. And he said, what did he say will be the outcome? He says, Whatever, uh, uh, and he says to the mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. He will have whatever he says. You will have whatever you say. Jesus taught us. Amen? So that's how we must use our faith. And it's very easy to speak. We know how to speak. We all say a lot of things. But Jesus, you have faith in God and speak to your situation, your circumstance, your mountain. So let's stand up to our feet and just to help us all, remind us all that we have to say what God says. We make our declaration Sunday after Sunday. So if you brought your Bible, hold it high up in the air and because of your faith in God, say this out loud, bold and strong. This is God's word. This is God speaking to me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I'm saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I'm blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I'm a minister of God, a servant of Christ, and a channel of his blessing to many people. I receive his word. I believe his word. And I live by his word. Christ is my master, and to him I am an absolute surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a moment, please, to just shake hands with the person next to you. Say hello, get, <laughs> get to know them, and then you can be seated. Now, uh, this, sun, this morning, uh, we're doing chapters 8, 9, and 10. So the book, all of this will be prepared in a, in a book. We're calling it a manual. You'll get it in a couple of weeks. Um, we, we're going to talk about sex and sexuality. We're going to talk about um, becoming a team. And we're going to talk about uh, resolving conflicts. So this is one sermon that is rated PG-13. So just in case there are any children here, their parents, if you feel they should not be sitting and listening uh, to this, I would encourage you to please take them to our children's church. Um, just so I don't want any complaints afterwards. You never told us. You know? <laughs> so we're giving you a little warning now. Uh, uh, you know, if you feel that your kids don't need to be here, then uh, please take them to the children's church. And... All right. So I want to talk a little bit. Uh, I know these are three chapters we're trying to cover in just maybe 40, 45 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to be very fast, very brief. Uh, there will be a lot more content in the book when you get it, so you can read it. But I feel we need to talk about uh, some of these things in church and address it for us uh, as a family, as people who are um, learning to grow in um, this area of marriage and family. I want to talk about sex and sexuality uh, first. And, uh, uh, you know, enjoying uh, a healthy Sex life 
in marriage is very important. It's not like, okay, I've got two kids now and I don't need this anymore. No, it's, it's more than that. Uh, God designed it as we will see that, that sex is an integral part of the married life. So God designed sex. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. Notice what it says. It says that it calls sexual intimacy, it calls it sacred. So sex itself is, is a sacred thing. It's not, you know, just uh, some, maybe some people may want to look at it like an animal behavior of man. No, it's not. It's a very sacred thing. It talks about the sacredness of sexual intimacy. It was designed by God. Therefore, there is something divine. There's something sacred. There's a spiritual dimension uh, to this physical act of sexual intimacy. God designed sex for procreation and enjoyment. Uh, we see this brought out for us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through and 6. It's a passage we've read before, but I want to read it again for us from the Message Bible, and then just elicit some key points uh, from this chapter. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through, uh, 7, 1 through 6, Paul writes, Now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, first, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. So, if you look at verse 2, Sexual drive, it's something God put in us. It was designed by God. It's sacred. It's holy. And God has designed it to be exercised or experienced or enjoyed in the context of marriage. And notice what he says here, that, that what does God desire? He desires for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life. He desires that, or he intended that for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life. So our married couples, husband, wives, Continue to enjoy this, a balanced and a fulfilling sexual life. Keep it at the pace that you are comfortable with, and it's got to be fulfilling. It's got to be satisfying. That's what God intended for it. Verse 3, the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality, the husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. So what about sexual intimacy? It's got to be mutual. It's got to be something that both enjoy. And also, it's a way for the husband to satisfy his wife, not just for him to derive pleasure for himself, but he's looking at how he can satisfy his wife, and the wife is seeing how she can satisfy her husband. Married couples, you all with me? Yeah, singles, you just pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, so the point is that God designed this as a means for the husband and the wife to bless each other, to satisfy each other. So, uh, 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 so sex must be enjoyed in this way, uh, with mutuality and with a desire to bless your spouse, to satisfy your spouse. Verse 4, marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out of it. So here again, he's saying, look, uh, 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 this, this whole thing about sex, it's, it's an opportunity for the husband and the wife to serve the other. You're just being a blessing to the other. And don't use this as a way 
as a weapon against your spouse. Don't use this as a way to get back or insist on your rights. No, it's a way to actually bless and to serve uh, your spouse. And verse 5 and 6, abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it and if it's for the purpose of prayer and fasting, but only for such time, such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not understand commanding peers of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. So what the Bible is saying is, look, sex is something that God has given to you for you to enjoy. Continue doing so. And continue doing it because as, when you do that, what will happen is you are protecting yourself from the enemy trying to gain entrance. Because the enemy will try to use this area of life to destroy the marriage. Are you with me so far? Right? So continue enjoying. Now, if you want to take a break, you want to have a period of abstinence where you need to spend some time in prayer, fasting, seeking God, then do it. Both of you agree together and that's fine. But come back together again so that you continue enjoying this together as a husband and wife because otherwise the enemy can use this to at- as a point of weakness to attack your marriage. Another passage I want to bring our attention to is in Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, verses 15 to 19, this is more directed towards the, uh, the husband, uh, but there is something to say even to the wife here in Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. It says, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. So he's talking to the husband. He's saying, husband, drink water. So drinking water is, is, is quenching your own thirst. Drink water from your own cistern. And your fountains, mean your children coming forth, let them be children with your own wife, not with strangers. So drink water from your own well. So husband, you need to focus your sexual affections toward your own wife. And husband, you derive your sexual fulfillment and satisfaction from your own wife. And the husband delights in his own wife's body and and derives all pleasure and delight with her love. And what does a wife do? It says you always be enraptured with her love. So the wife enraptures and overwhelms the husband with her love, is what the Bible says. Husband wives, you can say amen. Yeah, you're all hiding your face in the Bible. <laughs> Don't want to look at pastor. And I was like, <laughs> feeling shy, you know. So, <laughs> come on, guys. <laughs> right? So sex has been designed by God for our pleasure. Take time to enjoy. Take time to satisfy one another in this area. And, and, and give pleasure to your spouse. Wives, enrapture your husband with your love. Husbands, focus all your sexual affection towards your wife. Another important thing that's brought out to us from the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 to 20, is that sex is an expression of commitment, intimacy, and pleasure. 
you know, uh, 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 sex, as the world understands it, especially, you know, when the world uh, uh, engages in this outside of the context of marriage, whether it's, you know, uh, through affairs and adultery and, or through prostitution, all of that, they're just engaging in a physical act, but there is no commitment, there is no intimacy, and really, it's only bringing release, it's not bringing the heightened pleasure that God has assigned uh, for sexual that can be derived from sexual intimacy in the context of marriage when it's done correctly. And that's what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 to 20. He's addressing the wrong expression of sex, but we want to understand it and and derive the the proper uh, understanding of the benefits of it. Let's read this passage, verse 16. I'm reading from the Message Bible. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact, as, as written in scripture, the two become one. So notice what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I want you to understand something. There is a spiritual dimension to sex. And he's going to explain some of these things to us. But it's important for us as believers to keep in mind that, you know, when you're engaging in sex uh, as husband and wives, this is a sacred thing. There's a spiritual thing. When God has brought you together, here you are actually, uh, you're doing something physical, but you're actually enacting or you're living out a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality that the two have become one. So there's this spiritual aspect to what's what's happening. Verse 17, since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. So what must actually be there before the physical act? There must be commitment and intimacy. Commitment. When you're talking about sex outside of marriage, there is no commitment. And intimacy, the closeness, the emotional closeness, the coming together. So husbands, wives, build that. Ensure that is there. Commitment and intimacy. Then you're going to enjoy the pleasure that God designed and intended for uh, uh, sexual intimacy in marriage. Verse 18. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. The bodies that were made for God-given and god model love for becoming one with another. Now, of course, he's addressing the wrong use of it. But if he just flip it around and say, look, if I'm doing it correctly, then what is it? If I'm, so he's saying, if you're doing it wrong, you're violating the sacredness of your body. But if you're doing it right, what are you doing? You're honoring God with your body. So I want you to think about this. Husbands, wives, that when you are experiencing sexual intimacy, you are honoring God with your body. I know you never thought of that as a pastor. But this is what the scripture is saying. If you're doing it wrong, it's this way. But obviously the flip side is true. That if you're doing it right, there is, uh, there, you're, you're establishing the sacredness of your own bodies. The bodies that were, for, that were made for God-given, God-modeled love for becoming one. And that's what you are really expressing. Verse 19 and 20. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering with what God paid such a high price for, the physical part of you? 
the physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. So what are you saying? You know, God is in your body all the time. I don't know how you picture this. It's not like the whole, when you and your wife are having sex, the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'll leave you guys for a while. I'll come back later. <laughs> I don't think the Holy Spirit is doing that. God is not doing that. He is in you even when you are engaging physically with each other. And you, God is blessing. He is delighted in that sexual intimacy that you and your spouse are enjoying and experiencing. You are honoring God. The spiritual dimension is, is taking place and, and you are actually fulfilling what God designed, what God enacted, uh, God designed for us. And God is in us even during that time. Now, in the book, we talk about some practical things, especially for those who are preparing for marriage for the first night and after. You know, when you, as, in, as you're getting married, once you get married, you have your first night, you know, there's you know, all this full tension, what's going to happen, everything. Uh, so, uh, and we point you to a book, a good book called The Act of Marriage. Uh, it's a book by uh, Tim uh, and Beverly Lahe. Uh, we recommend that, uh, uh, that you read this book, The Act of Marriage, The Beauty of Sexual Love. Uh, but read it one month before you get married, not one year before. One month before is enough. You know, gets you ready on, uh, on, on how you prepare yourself for the first night. Uh, we also talked about some simple important practices for sexual intimacy. You can get it in the book. I don't want to uh, talk about it from the pulpit now. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, personal health and hygiene. I just want to make a little comment here. You know, it's important that you smell good and everything uh, so that you can enjoy your uh, time together with your spouse. So take care of your health and your hygiene uh, as, as, a prep, as, as part of engaging in sexual intimacy. I want to emphasize also on, on managing your personal sexuality. You know, just, uh, just because you get born again and you're saved and uh, you pray in tongues, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean you become an angel. Those who understand what I'm saying, say amen. <laughs> yeah. uh, it doesn't mean your sexual desires just disappear and from now on you're like, you know, Somewhere in the heavenly realms or something. No. You're still living in your natural physical body. And so as a man, as a woman, as a husband, wife, you still have your natural uh, 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 sexual affections, tendencies, and so on. But you need to manage your personal sexuality. And, and therefore, uh, I want to just make a few of these statements. Uh, direct all your sexual affections toward your spouse and your spouse alone. Uh, refuse the deceiving thought that you need to find uh, sexual fulfillment uh, through other means, whether it's through pornography or uh, sexual fantasies or anything else that's just dishonorable to God. Refuse that lying thought that, look, you know, I can find fulfillment in other areas. No. And uh, lastly, I also want to encourage all of us to pray and consecrate our sexual affections to God. You pray. Just as you say, God, I'm giving you my money, I'm giving you my time. Say, God, my sexual affections, I consecrate them to you. They are holy to you. And I consecrate them to you and I dedicate them to be uh, uh, expressed toward my spouse. Because this is honoring God and your spouse with your body. In the book, we uh, talk about a couple of other things, which uh, I won't mention now, about deciding when to have children um, and uh, uh, things of that, uh, uh, things related to that. Um, 
uh, we talk about you know what to do when you and your spouse lose interest in sex and what could be causes to it. And I want to close this section here on talking about sex and sexuality, uh, about um, you know enjoying sex when you're 40 and beyond. Um, there's another book written by the same couple, uh, Tim and Beverly Lahe. They have another book called The Act of Marriage After 40, uh, Making Love for a Lifetime. And you can get that book. You can read it. They, they present a lot of data and uh, research and so on. Uh, but essentially, in that book, they, 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 you know, we acknowledge that after 40, uh, the, the bodies begin to change. The woman at some stage will go through menopause and the man also has his body changing. Uh, but uh, it, it, what Tim and, uh, Tim and Babila just bring out in their book very nicely is that you don't have to, uh, as long as you're physically able, you don't have to stop enjoying sexual intimacy. Uh, you can go on till about 70 or 80, as long as you're physically able, you can continue to enjoy this and keep it safe, keep, help, um, help keep your marriage together even uh, through sexual intimacy. And I'll just read a little line from their book. It says, affection, warmth, and sensuality do not have to deteriorate with age and can actually increase in the midlife years. Sex in later life is sex for its own sake, since our childbearing years are in our rearview mirrors. We make love for pleasure, release, communication, and intimacy. So I just want a word of encouragement to uh, those who are, you know, well over full cross 40. Don't say, okay, now I'm in sexual retirement. No. <laughs> you can continue. As long as you're physically able, continue. Keep yourself strong. Eat well. Keep yourself healthy. And, and continue to enjoy this because it's part of what God designed for you in your marriage. Here ends the lesson. <laughs> and now we go to chapter 9. <laughs> uh, we talk about becoming a team here. Uh, we will spend a little time on this again. Uh, there's a lot in the book that we will not be able to cover during our Sunday service. But I want to bring out the, some key points here in becoming a team. Then we'll spend most of our time today uh, talking about resolving conflicts. You know, the husband and wife have this powerful or a great opportunity to become a powerful team for the kingdom of God. And we need to see more and more of that happening. More and more husbands and wives just becoming powerful teams for God's kingdom, for God's purposes. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses uh, 9 through 12, uh, is a very familiar passage to us. You've probably heard it very often, uh, um, read during weddings and so on. Uh, it brings out the power of two. What is the power that's available when there are two people walking in unity? Uh, it's not restricted to marriage, but it's definitely, definitely applicable to marriage. I'm reading from the Good News Bible. It says, two are better off than one because together they can work more effectively. So here is increased effectiveness, increased efficiency, increased measure of success when two people are working together uh, in unison. Verse 10, if one of them falls down, the other can help him up. But if someone is alone and falls, it's just too bad because there's no one to help. So here's that, that support. That strength, that, uh, that, that, uh, uh, um, the encouragement that comes. If one falls, there's somebody to help. And this is so true when, when a husband and wife go, walk together. You know, there'll be times when the, uh, the wife is feeling down. The husband can encourage her. There'll be times when the uh, husband, uh, what did I say, husband first? Sure. The, <laughs> when the other person is feeling down, the other person can lift him up. Or, you know. So there is that mutual support that's available, that, that you can do it for each other. 
Now, and what a nice thing to know that, look, you know, if you had a rough time at work, uh, that when you're going home, when you go back home, your wife will be there to encourage you. Or if the wife comes home, the husband is there to encourage her. You know, what a nice thing. That, that if one falls, the other is there to lift them up. And then it says in the next verse, uh, if, if it is cold, two can sleep together and stay warm. But how can you keep warm by yourself? And also here there is something that when you're coming together, you can experience, when, when you, you can experience which you cannot experience if you were alone. So being together can bring, can give that opportunity for encouragement, for support, uh, and, 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 and the strength, the warmth you need, which you cannot experience alone. So again, think about that, that beautiful thing that when you're going out uh, and, and you know, my spouse is with me, she's behind me, she's, he or she is backing me up in this thing. It gives you that confidence. You know, even if you go to the office and even if your boss doesn't believe in you, you say, at least my wife believes in me. She's there. She's cheering me on. You know, she's telling me I can do it. Or my husband is saying I can do it. That it builds you up. It, you, it gives you that, that uh, encouragement. And lastly, verse 12. Two people can resist an attack that would defeat one person alone. A rope made of three cords is hard to break. So what is saying? It's telling us there is enhanced strength. Which uh, the strength that you can experience is more than uh, if you're by yourself. Right? So uh, it brings in that enhanced strength into, uh, into overcoming challenges, into uh, gaining victories. So uh, I want to encourage husbands and wives as couples, you know, we should grow into this. It does not come automatically. And it's not just going to happen automatically. You have to grow into this thing of becoming a team, of learning to support one another, encourage one another, and leverage uh, the power of, t- of the two. Now, what could be some hindrances? Let's talk a little bit here about some hindrances that keep a husband and wife from being a team. Here are some things that come to mind. One is self-preservation, meaning like you want to preserve what is your own. Uh, that's yours, that's mine. This is my part of the house, that's your part of the house. <laughs> this is my bank account, that's your bank account. You know, when you have this his and uh, yours and mine mentality and you're only trying to preserve your own things. You know, these are my family members. I need to take care of them. You take care of your family members. You do what you want, you know. <laughs> and, and you have this yours and mine mentality and then you're looking at only preserving yourself. That is very detrimental to coming together. So you should change that mindset. Get rid of it. It's no longer yours and mine. It's ours. It's ours. We are working together. Or selfishness. You know, when one of the spouses, or the, the spouse is only looking at what can I get, you know, their own interests and not and neglecting the interests of uh, the husband, the wife, the spouse. There is, and when there is selfishness, selfishness is detrimental uh, to coming together uh, and becoming a team. You need to uh, place importance on, on both. You know, what are her interests? What are his interests? Let me encourage uh, because we need to grow together. Uh, competition, you know, especially in today's world, uh, when both husband and wife are working, competition, who's earning more? Oh, you got promoted, I got double promotion. You know? <laughs> I'm better. You know, I'm, you're assistant manager, I'm manager. You know? And this competition between husband and wife, and you're like, man, guys, you are together. You, know, you are one team. Don't compete with each other. Encourage and cheer each other up. If the husband does well, cheer him. If the wife does well, cheer her. Hey, you're together. You're not competing. You are complimenting. You're blessing each other. So there's no issue of competition. Or pride. You know, I'm better than you. Or you're not good enough for me. And these wrong thoughts, get rid of it. Now we're together. 
blaming instead of taking responsibility. If something goes wrong, instead of saying, ah, you did it, your fault. No. Something goes wrong, okay, let us see how we can solve this problem. It doesn't matter who caused the problem. You know, there'll be times the husband causes it, maybe most of the time, but sometimes the wife also may cause it. I don't know. But, you know, whoever caused the problem, stop blaming and instead say, okay, how do we solve the problem? Right? So, stop, change that mindset rather than blaming. Look at how could we do it? Or how about problem? Or being problem focused. If all you're doing is pointing out the problem, it's really not going to help uh, build up the team. Uh, instead, just look, let, look, at, uh, uh, big, uh, look at the solution. So, deal with wrong mindsets, things that hinder the husband and wife to, from becoming a team. Um, we talk about in this book here on what a wife, good husband wife team will look like. You know, a husband wife uh, that, that understands each other, respect your differences, your different opinions, perspectives. Um, understand each other's roles, support each other's roles, uh, recognize uh, God's gift and calling in your lives and help each other through it. One of the keys, that key things that we want to emphasize here in becoming a team is to know that God has brought you together for a kingdom purpose. Right? It's not just God's brought you together just for yourselves, for your own benefit. Of course, that's there. But God has brought you together for a kingdom purpose. And so, you need to see, how can we grow together to fulfill that purpose for the kingdom of God? How can we do that? Now, there are many practical things uh, that go into that. And we've mentioned it in the book, and I'll summarize it for you. That when you're growing together for kingdom purpose, understand that both of you, husband and wife, have been gifted, called, and graced differently. For example, I, am, I can preach and talk, but I, I don't know music. Like when I sing, all my, both Amy and my two kids close the ears. Dad, no. But I like to sing at home, right? not here. <laughs> at home, then I like to sing. I like to worship God that way. Just that I can't carry a tune. And so, you know, I go all over the place. But for me, I like to do that. But it's totally different. But God's gifted Amy in a different way. You know, with music. Uh, and, and a heart for people, and so she's very different. Uh, but what should we do? We should encourage each other to become the best God has called us to be. Right? So for me, okay, I, I do these kinds of things. Amy does different things. You know, uh, she's a doctor, so she goes and visits people, and maybe she, in a week's, week, she ministers to more individuals than a full-time pastor. No, they do house visits and on average they visit at least four families every day. And ask a pastor, how many families do you visit every day? But that's their ministry. And they go out as a team, part of the missions hospital. They go out, meet people, minister to them, uh, take care of them. Whenever the opportunity arises, you pray with your patients, you share the gospel. And there are amazing stories that come out of that work. Which... Okay, it's not the traditional pastor's wife. Most people expect the pastor's wife to, you know, do children's church or lead women's ministry or be in the choir. But I don't put that pressure on Amy. So no, you be whom God has called you to be. Don't live for people's expectations. We don't do that. From the beginning, even before we started church, we said very clear, 
We are not here to live to people's expectations. You be whom God has called you to be. So people are saying, where is the pastor's wife? Why she is not leading children's church? Why she is not leading women's ministry? Why she is not leading intercessory prayer? Who said, where is it in the Bible? You know? No, we are all called to be what God has called us and gifted us to be. That's it. So encourage your wife or your husband to recognize, discover their calling and grow into that calling. Whatever it God's put it. Bless them, encourage them, support them. And you'll be a powerful team because you're going to have impacts in various places in the city. Now, nowadays, my wife is more famous than me. I was like, oh, you're Amy's wife, a husband's wife. <laughs> it used to be, oh, you're pastor's wife. Now it's different. Oh, you are that doctor's husband. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, because she travels all over the city, goes into so many homes, meets so many people that, you know, uh, so, uh, and, and that's having great impact. What do I have to do? I have to support and encourage. In the same way, uh, uh, she reciprocates that and letting me do the kind of things God has gifted, called, and graced me to do. So, become that. Become a team. Support each, each other. It, and you don't do anything to put up a pretense before people. We're not here to pretend before people. We're not here to make it, you know, uh, put up a false impression before people. We're here to be real, to be whom God has called us to be. And, uh, and, and as part of that, carry a servant's heart and, and, and mutual submission and, and be, become a kingdom team um, for God. All right, let me go now to the chapter 10, which is on resolving conflicts. Um, And uh, this probably is uh, a very important part of the message. And I'm, I'm going to take a little bit longer today to talk about this. Because conflicts will happen. In all these many years of uh, ministry, uh, I've met only one couple who told me we've not had any problems. And I actually don't believe that. <laughs> but almost every couple... Without a, without a fail, has had and has problems. There is no marriage that has no conflicts. Unless, you know, you're already in heaven or whatever, I don't know. But as long as you're here on earth, I can tell you that conflicts will happen. And, and conflicts happen uh, at the very basic, for the very basic reason that we are different. The husband, the wife, as men, as a man, as a woman, you are different. We are different. And, uh, and just to you know, mention some of these differences, and of course I've taken some of this from a, a, a paper, an article written by um, uh, Dr. Michael Connor, uh, who's a clinical and medical psychologist, and you have those details in the book. Uh, but just to summarize, you know, first of all, there are obvious anatomical and physiological differences between a man and a woman. It's very obvious. And uh, what's interesting is there are you, there are physiological differences that sometimes we don't even recognize, we're not aware of, because they're internal. For instance, the man's skull is thicker than a woman's skull. And it's, man, he's got a heart. <laughs> or the woman's brain has four times as more, as, uh, four times more interconnectivity between their two hemispheres. Four times more neurons connecting the two parts of the brain. 
So while a man is very left brain, a woman, when she looks at things, there's a more, more right brain activity also coming into those, uh, into bearing on those uh, situations and circumstances. So there are physiological differences, and this obviously leads to psychological differences, differences in the way we, um, we, we look at things uh, in terms of problem-solving, thinking, memory, and so on. So let's just mention some of these things. In problem-solving, the man focuses on solving the problem. He's like, let me solve it as quickly as possible. So he solves the problem, he goes to his wife and says, you know, I solved the problem. Wife says, Oh, but you never discussed it with me. <laughs> you know, so the man is all excited that he actually solved the problem. But the wife is still disappointed. Why? Because she would have appreciated that he discussed the problem and took her along to solve the problem. Because the man is focused on solving the problem. And, and for him, that is an expression, a demonstration of his competence, of his skill. But the woman, she'll also arrive at the same solution, but for her, she's more focused on the process of how you solve the problem is more important to, than the fact that you actually solved the problem. So because the husband didn't discuss it with her and, and then take her through that process alone, she's not happy. Why? It's just a difference. The man is, I've solved one problem, where's the next one, you know? <laughs> just a psycho different in problem solving. Or in our thinking. You've heard this book, it's actually the title of a book, Men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. Right? Men think in compartments. You know, it's all, it's all departmentalized, segmented, isolated. Elements are all separate. You know, that's why the man can have a fight in the morning with his wife and he's ready for sex at night. <laughs> he's ready. The woman is not like that. Everything is connected. <laughs> if you had a fight two days ago, she is still recovering, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, for the man, he is compartmentalized, you know. He's like, okay, that is over. I keep it there. I'm ready for this. <laughs> The woman is like spaghetti. Everything is all connected. And, and so, uh, we need to understand each other. So, when you know, the husband is talking to the wife, and, and uh, he's looking at something very, very, you know, focused. And sometimes this is good, because the wife looks at it from a global perspective. Everything is connected. What happened three days ago is still connected to this. And in some cases, that's very, it's good, actually. Uh, because she tends to see the bigger picture often. And, but that's the way we think differently. And I, and I remember these are all generalizations and, and we've grown, we've adapted, uh, but these are general differences between men and women. Or in terms of memory, the woman, her memory, her recall is associated with emotion. So she remembers things mainly because of the emotion, the feelings that were associated with them. For man, for the male, he recalls based on task, on challenge, or activity. Wow, what did I conquer? Man, I broke two teeth. Mm, I remember that, you know. Or I, they, he remembers because of the challenge, the competition, the, the achievement. But she remembers because of the emotion. And a lot of things are connected because of emotion. 
And her recall is based on that. So even memory is different. Our sensitivity, what are we really sensitive to? Again, it's very different. Uh, there is a physiological basis to this, but essentially a woman is very sensitive. In her relations, uh, she's looking at a communication of a sharing of thought, of perspective, and of emotion. For a man, he's looking at, let's do things together. Let, let's accomplish things together. Let's, let's make things happen. He's looking at shared activity. A woman is looking at a shared thought and feeling. And she's sensitive to that. The man is sensitive to, you know, he's more interested in doing things together uh, and so on. So there are these obvious differences between men and women. And then there, of course, there are personal differences between a husband and wife in terms of upbringing, culture, uh, life experience, learning, all of these things. And so these are just the fact that we are different can give rise to conflicts. It's not that one is better than the other or one is right and wrong, just that we're different. Conflicts going to happen in, in between a husband and wife. And sometimes there can be other, uh, we understand there are other reasons for conflict. Uh, it could be uh, interference by in-laws or financial matters or wrong behavior patterns, neglect of responsibilities. Uh, all these things can also give rise to conflict. But, uh, uh, but understand that if I can deal with the fact that I begin to understand my wife, I can work on that, it's going to minimize the chance of conflict. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husband, live with your wives with proper understanding. Recognizing that they are the weaker or the more delicate vessel. Meaning recognize that there are differences between you and your spouse, your wife. And, and, and deal with her with that in mind. Now, when there is conflict, what happens? There is offense. Usually there is somebody or both are offended. There is hurt. And many times there is anger. Get angry. And uh, all of these are natural reactions. That is, when there's a conflict, yeah, you're going to be offended some way. You'll feel hurt and feel angry. It's a natural response. Uh, so there's nothing bad with that, but anger must be controlled. In your anger, you don't want to say and do things that damage the other person. So the challenge for us is learn to control our anger, to master your temper. And uh, there are several scriptures on this. You know, for, uh, uh, I'll just read a couple of verses here. Uh, Proverbs 14, 17 says, People with a hot temper do foolish things. Wiser people remain calm. Proverbs 15, 18. Hot temper causes arguments, but patience brings peace. And there are several other scriptures. So when, when we get angry, learn to press the pause button. If you're like, okay, there's a conflict, there's a disagreement, we're now getting into an argument, it's, we are getting angry, pause. Step away. It's okay, you know, uh, let's, let's put a pause on this discussion. We'll come back together later. Because at this moment, we are too angry. It's very likely we're going to say and do things that are bad. So pause. Let's calm down, right? And I would also uh, encourage a couple of other things. Avoid avoidance. That means just because there's a conflict, don't walk away and pretend that it never happens. You need to come back and resolve the issue. Come back to it. Talk about it. Avoid avoidance because you know what? That thing is going to start festering in, inside both of you. And it'll become like a volcano. On the outside, it looks nice. But inside, it's stirring. It's getting ready to erupt. And you don't know when. The next time there's a conflict, it's going to be a big, massive eruption. 
and it's going to get things way out of hand. So when there is conflict, you avoid avoidance. Come back to it to address the issue. Talk about it. And uh, I would also like to mention at this point that I would encourage us to get help from a counselor or an intermediary. And especially when you're young, when you're in your early stages of marriage, you really don't know uh, uh, and you don't have the experience on how do I sit down and talk about a very difficult thing with my spouse. Now you can do it in the office. Why? Because you have a conference room, you've got lots of people there, your boss is also there. If you do anything wrong, you get fired. You know, and, and there's a lot of other controls, but not in your home. It's a very different environment. And, and, and you don't know how to sit down and work through uh, resolving a conflict with your spouse. So what we'd encourage you to do, at least in the early stage of marriage, if there's a conflict that you're not able to sit down and talk through, then get the help of a counselor. Get the help of an intermediary, like a pastor, somebody. So we have counselors. Chrysalis counseling is available. If you're having problems, reach out for help. Don't pretend you don't need help. Or talk to a pastor or talk to somebody who's more spiritually mature. Get them involved to help you go through this process of resolving conflict. Now, if you do that once or twice, then you will know how to do it. Then you're fine. You can do it on your own. But get help. What I want to do now in the, in the next maybe five minutes is quickly go through seven steps on resolving conflict. And in your mind, you're doing calculation. Pastor, one minute, one step, seven minutes. <laughs> I'll try to finish it quick. Uh, seven step resolving conflict. Now, I'm not drawing this from psychology or social science. I'm just bringing scripture. Here are biblical things that we can see uh, concerning human relationships that the Bible teaches about, which we can apply then to marriage and how we resolve conflicts in marriage. I'm just going to very quickly go through it. There's a lot more scripture and detail in the book that you will get. The first step, of course, is as you want to resolve a conflict. Let's say you and your spouse have you know, gotten this very heated argument. You don't know how to solve it. You press the pause button. But you need to come back now to sort it out. How would you go about doing it? Here's how. First of all, pray and prepare your heart. Everything starts with your heart condition. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you are still angry in your heart, you're still bitter in your heart, you're going to speak. It's only bitterness and anger going to come out. So, start with your heart. Go to God and say, God, you know, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling upset. I feel I've been treated unfairly. I feel that, you know, whatever. You know, talk to God and say, God, heal my heart. Change my heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. I want to have the right heart attitude towards this. So, start with your heart and ask God to change that. Uh, and bring healing also. In fact, if you've already been hurt, bring healing. So that you don't act out of hurt. But you act out of a clean heart, a good heart. Second, Receive empowering to love and forgive. Some situations, it's very difficult to love, especially when you feel your husband's mistreated you or whatever. It may be very difficult to love, but our capacity to love comes from God. Right? The Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. So you pray, say, God, empower me to love. Even in spite of everything, empower me to love uh, by your Spirit. The love of God is poured into my heart by your spirit. Help me to forgive. Help me to do this. And three, receive God's wisdom to address the situation. So now I need to solve the problem. What is the way to solve this situation? Give me wisdom, God. Show me the ideas. What is the right way to address it? Show me where things are going wrong. Sometimes that, you know, you ask that question, God, where are things going wrong? And God says, you are the problem. Okay, I'm the problem. Okay, God, what do I need to change? Maybe my attitude needs to change. Maybe the way I'm saying things or the way I'm doing things. I need to change. But be open 
to whatever God puts in your heart, corrects you, in whatever way he corrects you. This is the problem. Here's how you have to address it. Ask God for the wisdom you need to solve the problem. Uh, James 3, chapter 3, differentiates the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world is selfish, it's jealous, and uh, uh, James 3 talks about it as being um, bitter. Uh, so if I'm doing things out of jealousy, bitterness, or selfishness, that's the wisdom of the world. But the wisdom that's from God is pure, it's gentle, it's peaceful, it's friendly, it's compassionate, and it produces good. So if I'm motivated by that, then I know I'm walking in the wisdom that comes from God. Number four is sometimes the most difficult thing, which is now after you've prayed and prepared your heart, you sit down and lovingly discuss the matter. So both of you sit down. So let's talk, and let's do it lovingly, let's do it peacefully. And... This is where you, again, in your early stages, you may need the help of an intermediary. You may need a counselor. You may need a pastor to sit with you and walk you through this process and give each other equal opportunity to talk. So let the wife talk, let the husband talk. And then, you know, you share your ideas, you address the matter. And then, number five, you resolve the matter. Find a solution that's peaceful. In order to find a peaceful solution, uh, you may have to give up some of your rights. You may have to make certain changes. You may have to accommodate certain changes. Um, but you choose to pursue the path of peace. What is going to bring peace to our marriage? What is going to bring peace to our home? Uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Number six is to give and receive forgiveness. So once you've agreed together, look, we are going to take this path of peace, which is peaceful. I also want you to forgive me. If I have said things that have hurt you, maybe two days ago we had this argument, and I said things that hurt you, please forgive me. Receive forgiveness. In order to receive forgiveness, I have to acknowledge that I did something wrong. I may have said things wrong. Please forgive me. And you give forgiveness. So maybe your spouse said and did things that were hurtful, but you give forgiveness. Because now you've chosen to walk the path of peace. You're releasing the past. It's gone. When you forgive somebody, you don't repeat the matter. Two days ago, sometimes I've sat with a couple, they said, on the day of our wedding, 15 years ago, I'm like, man, it's 15 years down the road. You know? And here, they are arguing and fighting that took place on the day of the wedding. My father didn't receive enough chicken pieces. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it can be so crazy, so silly. This has been festering for 15 years. And they're arguing about it now. It's like there was no sense of forgiveness and letting go and all these. And the two matters are sometimes so silly. They're like, feel like shameful. I'm, I'm spending time talking about these things. But, you know, uh, sometimes these small things can cause such uh, uh, irritation in a, in, a, in, a, in a marriage and bring conflicts. Um, so you've got to let go. Now, Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Carry no bitterness in your heart. Let it go. No. And lastly, you've got to release blessing, which means from now on you're going to do what's good to your spouse. Help her. Maybe, maybe make her tea in the morning and, and come and serve it to her. Or, you know, wash the dishes before she wakes up. Or, you know, whatever. Do something good. You release blessing to your spouse, letting her know that, look, the conflict of yesterday is past. Today is a new day. I'm walking in peace. I'm walking in forgiveness. I'm walking 
to bless your life. You release forgiveness. And when you start practicing this in small things, then when the conflicts get you know, a little bit more difficult, should there be such a situation, you would know how to work at a resolution. The thing is, you need to develop the skill to do it because no marriage is void of conflicts. And you need to understand, here are some things in the Bible that teaches us how to keep strife out of our life. You need to protect your marriage because the moment strife comes in to your marriage, you're opening the door to all kinds of demonic work. All kinds of demonic work begin to come in when there is strife. Strife gives the devil an open door into your marriage. So keep strife out of your life. Deal with it as soon as possible. Get help if you want it. Now, and we're here, the pastors are there, our counselors are there to help you. We want to build strong marriages. Amen? And I want us to understand that as we prepare for a revival, as we prepare for a visitation of God, one of the most important things is we need to have strong marriages. We need to have strong families. Without that, a visitation of God, a move of God in us will only destroy us. So why? Because we won't have the capacity to handle that. And so at the very core of our, of our church life, we must have strong marriages. We must have strong families. Then when we have a move of God through us and, and through the city, city and across our nation, the church will be strong enough to be carriers of revival. Amen? If you're married and your spouse is next to you, I want you to hold your, ha- hold your hands together as we pray this morning. Father, your word has gone forth and we just pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you will touch every marriage, touch every family. And Father, we pray your blessing on sexual intimacy between husband and wife. That this sacred union, God, this sacred thing that you've given to us in marriage will will truly be blessed and there'll be that freshness, there will be that joy, even in sexual intimacy. We pray, God, for husbands and wives to capture, to get an understanding of coming together, becoming a team for the purpose of your kingdom. Use every couple, God. Maximize their individual potential and use them powerfully for your kingdom, God. We pray, Father, for marriages where there may be conflict, where there might be difficulties right now, where they're struggling to maintain understanding. Father, we pray for the grace to act upon the word we heard this morning that as husbands, wives, will go back and 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 seek you, O God, in prayer and seek strength from you to bring about peace in the relationship. Wisdom, O God, give wisdom so that marriages can be strengthened, restored, O God. We pray for single people. We pray your guidance on their lives. Prepare them, Father, for a great life ahead. Pray for those who might be single because of other reasons, maybe 
Lord, they may have lost a spouse or separated or divorced or going through different challenges. We pray your grace and blessing on their lives that they'll find fullness in you and still rise up to the full potential you've placed in their lives and, and use them, Lord, for your glory. Use them for your glory. Prepare us as a church. Prepare us as a people for a mighty visitation of God. For a mighty move of your Holy Spirit that will impact our city and our nation. Start with our homes. Start with our marriages. We thank you. Yeah. 
Father, we just pray that you continue a powerful work in every home, in every marriage, every family. Do a powerful work, we pray. We thank you, Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with each one of us always. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for your patience until we finish the sermon. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. Have a great week. See you again. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.